0: All right, I don't think anyone's gonna disagree with me on this one. Uh, Social media is a double-edged sword. Social media, in in, in my opinion, has a lot of of pros to it, but all too often has a lot of cons to it. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Uh, I think even people that are Christians have to deal with this double-edged sword And most of the time, social media is, honestly, if we're just going to be honest, it is divisive. It is argumentative. It is a bunch of clickbait. Waste of time, honestly, sometimes. However, right? However, every now and then, there's something on social media that is worth my time, right? There's something on social media that's worth my time, something that is actually interesting will pop up on my feed. And every now and then it seems like the whole world gets focused on a singular issue or a singular meme or a singular gif or whatever it might be. And they focus on it because of how important this moment is. An example of this is obviously what color this dress is. right? In 2015, I don't know if you remember this, but if you're on Facebook, in 2015, a worldwide debate ensued on what color this dress is. Some people look at this dress and they see a white and gold dress. Other people look at this dress and they see a black and blue dress and believe it or not in 2015 this dress took over the world people were arguing people were, were, were going back and forth on what color this dress was the correct people saw golden white i'm just saying maybe you see something else but you're wrong no, i'm just kidding but how did this all start right how, how does something viral like this start and, and, and become a, a, a worldwide phenomenon like this? If you're on Facebook, you know how big of a deal this was, and it became the debate within your family, it became debate within your work, or whatever it might be. How does it start out? Well, with this particular story, it started out with a, a, a woman in Scotland. It was a mother who was buying a dress for her daughter's wedding, Right? And she goes to the dress store and she, call, she she, sends a picture of this particular dress to her daughter and says, what do you think about this dress for my dress to wear to the wedding? The daughter laughed, thought it was a joke, thought it was a prank. Why would you choose a dress that doesn't match my colors at all? Why would you choose a dress that doesn't go with the wedding? And that's when the mom says, but it does go with the colors of your wedding. It, it is the colors that match your wedding? What what are you talking about? So naturally, what does the bride do? The bride posts this picture to Facebook to get feedback from the world. What color is this dress? And that debate spread virally throughout the world. Isn't it amazing how two people can look at the exact same thing? see two completely different things two people can look at the exact same material the exact same fibers the exact same dyes the exact same cloth and can see two completely different things from one another when you hear someone actually saying that this dress is not the color that you see, it honestly feels like they're pulling your leg, right? It's like, are you kidding me? It, of course it's the color I see, but, but yet they're sitting over there saying, no, it, it's a completely different color. The question is, how, how can this one image be described in two completely different ways, depending on who you ask? Tonight, we are going to be addressing an issue in the restoration movement that they faced but it's an issue that we face tonight it's an issue that we face to this very day in Christianity we're going to be talking about an issue where where two people can look at the same thing and see two completely different things except it's not a dress or a purse or some shoes or something trivial like that. Tonight we're talking about an issue like this when it comes to the scriptures. And tonight we're going to be taking another look at what the scriptures have to say when it comes to baptism. Tonight we're gonna be looking at what the scriptures have to say about baptism and, and what the restoration leaders had to say about baptism and what the world today says about baptism. You know, it's interesting, even though we all believe that the New Testament puts forth a a singular message about baptism, it it puts forth a singular, consistent, and unifying message from beginning to end when it comes to baptism. Many still, to this day, misunderstand its purpose and its role in the life of a Christian. When it comes to baptism, it seems like one person can look at the scriptures and see one thing, and another person can look at the scriptures and see an entirely different message than the other. But what do we know about God's Word? Is God's Word relative? Is God's Word uh, uh, up for, for you to say it means this, and for me to say it means this? We talked about that last week, did we not? 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 20-21 Peter says no prophecy of scripture, scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. It's not relative when it comes to God's word. We may be able to have a fun debate about the color of a dress but when it comes to God's word the truth is absolute. The truth is fixed, and the truth was ordained from the mouth of God himself. So tonight, it's up to you and it's up to me to to confront this issue head on. To confront this issue is exactly what we see the restorers do, and exactly what we're called to do tonight. Before we get into our study tonight on baptism, I want to make sure everyone knows where we've come to get to this point tonight. I see new faces in here tonight. We got new faces online. I wanna make sure everyone understands what brought us to this study tonight. It, it, it's all been a part of, of a two-quarter long study on the restoration movement called To Be Continued. And we went all the way back and, and we saw the biblical basis for restoration in phase one when we had an introduction to the movement, right? And we, we asked the question, well, if we are to restore the church, where are we restoring it to? and and we're restoring the church to the church that God intended for her to be. Then we ask the question, uh, what is the first step in a restoration process? And and the first step we have to take is is a step back to ask, am, have we departed to the right or, or have we departed to the left? Are we adding and taking away and loosening and binding? And that's what we talked about in phase one of our study. In phase two of our study, we went back all the way to when the 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 train went off the rails, and that was back in 380 AD when we had the Edict of Thessalonica, which is something we're going to talk about yet again tonight. And that Edict of Thessalonica was what made Christianity the the accepted religion in Rome, And, and when that happened, it led to a thousand years of confusion. And then comes the Reformation movement with Martin Luther and and Huldrych Zwingli and and John Calvin and and these guys who who sought out to reform the church and we learned when it comes to the reformation there would have never been a restoration without the reformation. Then we saw the the roots of the restoration movement in Scotland. In phase three we talked about some prolific moments in restoration history like the last will and testament or the declaration and address or Alexander Campbell's sermon on the law and, and then we saw the, the, the different movements, the Stone movement and the Campbell movement, unite. And instead of the Stone and Campbell movements, it was now the Restoration movement. So that was phase three of our study where we saw the, the formation of the movement. And then last week we started phase four of our study where we're talking about the instruction of the movement. And we talked about pattern theology and, and how pattern theology is the formula. It is the recipe for how to understand and interpret Scripture. How to look at an issue and understand God's prescription to man. All we have to do is fill that prescription, right? We talked about that last week. And so when we think about pattern theology, we're talking about looking at the Bible and looking at the New Testament for commands and for an example and for implications that we need to necessarily infer and that's the formula that we talked about last week tonight we continue phase four of our study by looking at the issue of baptism we continue the instruction of the movement when it comes to the issue of baptism and when it comes to this study of the Restoration Movement, we've already talked about baptism a couple of times. If you've been here with us, and you've been following along with us, we've already come upon the problem of baptism a couple of times in our study so far. If you'll remember back to our study on the Stone Movement and the Campbell Movement uniting, remember we talked about how baptism was one of the key issues that was keeping them from exchanging the right hand of fellowship. but we found out that they came to a consensus on baptism before they united. If you remember back, we also talked about baptism when it comes to uh, the, the history of Thomas and Alexander Campbell themselves when, when they realized and they studied the scriptures that they hadn't done what God's Word prescribes and they, they, they went out and they did what God's Word prescribes. So we've talked a little bit about baptism and and, and we've we've seen this issue already in the Stone-Campbell movement, in the Restoration movement. But tonight we dive in for an entire lesson on this issue on a broader scale. Tonight we dedicate our focus to the absolute bedrock, the absolute fundamental part and most foundational doctrine when it comes to Christianity, and that is baptism. To understand the landscape of this discussion tonight, to understand the landscape of, of this discussion we're having tonight and the discussion they had in the restoration movement, and why things are the way they are tonight in Christendom today. In order to understand that you don't have to look any farther than back to the edict of Thessalonica I want to remind you maybe we have people who weren't here for this study many weeks ago but we went all the way back to ancient Rome and we talked about how these three different edicts slowly but surely made Christianity more accepted in the world and what happened then we thought was going to be good, but actually was the worst thing that could have ever happened to the church because what happens when the, in 380 A.D. when the Edict of Thessalonica comes out, you can see Theodosius I, the emperor of Rome, he instituted what is called the marriage of church and state. You know, today we celebrate the, the separation of church and state, but when he made this edict, it was the marriage of the two. It was a coterminous relationship that they each depended upon one another. And so when the edict of Thessalonica was enacted, changes to the church, changes to biblical doctrine, continued to spiral down and down to create the spiritual confusion that we still see today. And when it comes to baptism, it's it's no different. The confusion in the world today about baptism can be traced all the way back to 300 A.D., 380 A.D. The doctrine of baptism has been distorted. It has been misunderstood. It has been misapplied all the way back to the Edict of Thessalonica. Because that was when the church came the Catholic Church. And that is when the Catholic Church instituted the sprinkling of infants instead of the immersion of the believer. And that was the norm for over a thousand years. In that thousand years of spiritual confusion we talked about a second ago. That was the norm. And then then you fast forward to the Reformation movement and you can start to see how denominations are going to start questioning this infant baptism and, and asking the question, is this right? Is sprinkling infants right? Do we find this in God's word anywhere? And, and you see even some denominations restoring immersion, but, but you don't see many restoring the mean, the meaning of baptism. If you remember, when you look at Barton W. Stone and Thomas and Alexander Campbell, we, we talked about how they but both, both of them come from the Presbyterian tradition. They come from the Presbyterian tradition that taught adamantly about infant sprinkling. And so when you look at these men, both of them are coming from different places, but all around the same time and all around the same places, and having to confront the same issues. And so when we look at the stone movement, Bill Humble says this about baptism. He says, the question of baptism was raised in the stone movement, in 1807, remember this is not that much longer after Barton W. Stone's last will and testament. Humble says, when it was decided that immersion would be practiced, Stone immersed David Pervience, and Pervience in turn immersed Reuben Dooley. Pervience and Dooley were among the first preachers who had joined the movement after the Christian church was launched. Immersion was soon widely practiced among the Christians. And even though it was not made a test of fellowship, Stone would write in 1826, There is not one in 500 among us who have not been immersed. Remember we talked a few weeks ago about how, though at this time Stone didn't make it a test of fellowship, he would one day make it a test of fellowship. So we can see early on, remember this, 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 this unity found in, in Stone and Campbell uniting was 1832. Well here's the issue of baptism arising in 1807. Very early on, the issue of baptism by immersion was on the forefront of the stone movement. You look at the Campbell movement, and Humble says this. The question of baptism was raised very soon after the Campbells accepted the Restoration principle. When Thomas Campbell presented the Declaration and Address to the Christian Association of Washington in 1809, Andrew Munro objected that if they practiced only what was expressly enjoined in the New Testament, they could not sprinkle infants. Realize that this is, this is the natural thing that happened once Thomas Campbell started preaching a, a, a message that we need to do only what is expressly written and authorized by the New Testament. And this led to what we talked about a few weeks ago where Thomas and Alexander, a few years later, were immersed for the remission of their sins, just like we talked about. But once Stone and Campbell were able to unite on the doctrine of baptism in 1832, then the true message of the gospel could finally be restored. The true message of the gospel could finally be restored so that people could actually know what the true gospel said. And Campbell and Stone were very important when it comes to this idea of, of baptism for their remission of sins. But, but Walter Scott is another giant in the restoration movement. We haven't talked about Walter Scott much at all thus far in our study. But Walter Scott, a little bit of information about him. He was born in Scotland. And, and when you hear that, you should automatically, if you've been with us long enough, you should automatically realize... Well, then he was reared in the same doctrine of the Haldanes and the Sandemans and John Glass, the same way we studied that a few weeks ago. He was reared in that restorative movement that started in Scotland. But Walter Scott moved to America just like Alexander Campbell did, and in 1822 they met and they became very good friends. And Walter Scott became one of the greatest proponents of immersion for the remission of sins in all the United States of America what Walter Scott tried to do is he tried to use reason and logic when you look at the scriptures to understand the essentiality of baptism. Look at this quote from Bill Humble. He says, Walter Scott's proclamation of baptism for the remission of sins supplied the movement with an essential which it had previously lacked, a dynamic and successful evangelism. It was an evangelism which emphasized reason rather than emotion. The belief of New Testament testimony rather than the direct working of the Holy Spirit. The proclamation of faith in the Messiah. And baptism for the remission of sin, Scott believed, was the gospel restored. When you look at the work of, of Walter Scott and, and the writings that he had in, in the different periodicals that he wrote, he was so pivotal in our understanding tonight. The way we understand the scriptures tonight is very much tied to the work of Walter Scott. And he believed, as the end of it says, that that, that baptism for the remission of sins was how the gospel would truly be restored. With that, with that in mind, let's leave the, the history and, and start looking at God's Word. Let's, let's direct our attention to the New Testament. And let's use the formula that we talked about last week to see what God's will is when it comes to baptism. Let's go back to the Bible for the pattern. Let's see if, if, if Walter Scott truly restored the gospel or if he simply made a new one that we have wrong to this day. Before we get started, it's it's possible, it's even probable that we have people in this room tonight who know so much about the issue of baptism and the doctrine of baptism that that maybe maybe you feel like this has been talked to death. Maybe you feel like we've talked about this ad nauseum. And, and if that's you, I want you to remember two things tonight. If you believe that that you you. Maybe you're sick and tired of talking about baptism. I want you to remember two things tonight. Number one, the only reason you understand the doctrine of baptism the way you do tonight, the only reason the doctrine of baptism is so deeply imprinted upon you and your knowledge is because of the restoration movement, because of these men because of the the, the men who dedicated so much for us to understand what God's word is. The men who who trimmed the layers back on that overgrown sheep we talked about weeks ago. It was because they trimmed the layers back that that we could see that the true image that God's word tries to portray. Number two. I hope you're able to, to say with us tonight that there will never come a day in your life where baptism is a subject you can grow tired of. I hope there's not a day in your life that the subject of baptism is something that you grow tired of. That you grow sick of. Because baptism is the bedrock. Baptism is the beginning. It is the launching point of the Christian life. Baptism is the point at which any one of us who are in Christ, any one of us got a chance of going to heaven. So tonight, let's open up God's Word and talk about baptism for a minute. When you turn to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he's going to start talking about the, the, the elementary principles when it comes to faith and when it comes to doctrine. And, and in Hebrews chapter 6, the writer openly says that baptism is supposed to be an elementary principle. He says doctrines of baptism. Baptism is supposed to be the milk of the Word, not the meat of the Word. And it's not my, my goal tonight to take something that was intended to be milk and try to make it into meat. That's not my goal tonight. I don't think it should be our goal ever to do that. I don't want you to misunderstand the lesson tonight. Baptism is essential, but it is only the beginning. Baptism is the bedrock, but it is only the beginning of a Christian's walk with God. You know, some people believe if if we can just get them in the water... Then we can wash our hands and be done with it. And that's when so many different people fall by the wayside. Just like that sow or sow and seed, they get choked out by the world. Baptism is essential, but it is not the end all be all. It's simply the beginning. Tonight we have uh, five points, if you'll just bear with me. We have five points we want to talk about baptism. Baptism, number one, is immersion. Baptism is immersion. It doesn't get more fundamental than the word baptism itself. If you look at the Koine Greek, you're going to see that the word for baptism is baptizo. And when we look at the word baptizo, it means to immerse, to submerge. To overwhelm. That is the direct definition of the word. Whenever you see the word baptism in your New Testament, the Bible is alluding to immersion. It's, it's alluding to a, a submersion, not simply just a pouring or a sprinkle. It's talking about a burial. You know, one way that we understand what a dead language is trying to communicate, because that's what Koine Greek is, it's a dead language, one of the ways we try to understand what a dead language is communicating is we go to secular writings to understand what is trying to be said. Because secular writers use the same words that we find in Scripture sometimes. And so we know if the secular writer is using it for that reason, then it's probably the same way the apostles and, and, and the, the, the disciples who wrote the New Testament probably the same way they meant to use those words. And so you can do that with secular writing sometimes. And up there you can see Nicander, who was a noted Greek poet of Colophon in 200 BC. In 200 BC, Nicander, he prescribes a recipe for how to preserve Right? I mean, how crazy is this? Can you imagine uh, the the idea of baptism being solidified by a pickle recipe? I don't know if you ever thought about that before or you've ever heard this before, but that's exactly what we can see. Because Nicander, way back then in 200 B.C., before Christ even came, in Cornet Greek, he was describing a recipe for pickles. And he uses the word baptizo. He uses the word baptizo to understand how to preserve a pickle. This is what he says. The vegetable should first be baptizo into boiling water. And then the vegetable should be baptizo in a vinegar solution. That's how we preserve pickles. But what is he saying? Is he saying you should get a little vinegar and and sprinkle it on the pickle and it'll be all right? I don't know about you. I've never seen a pickle preserved that way. I go by the grocery store and it's in a jar, completely submerged into the solution. Another way we can understand this is 2 Kings chapter 5. We can't see it necessarily in the English translation, but if you were to look at the the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you can see in 2 Kings chapter 5, you remember the story of Naaman? You know how Naaman was told to go and to dip in the Jordan River seven times and then he would be cleansed from his leprosy? You remember that story? If you look at the Greek Septuagint, it has the word baptizo there in the story. It wasn't enough for him to uh, just have the water sprinkled on him or to have the water poured on him. Naaman had to fully submerge himself into the Jordan River seven times. And that's where you see that word being used. When we look at the New Testament, there's absolutely no question whether baptism is a burial or a sprinkle. There is no question whether baptism is a submersion or simply a pouring. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8, you're going to see the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and and how Philip caught him on the way as he was on his way back from Jerusalem. And and Philip taught him and, and showed him the scriptures and tried to make him understand what it was he was reading. And what happens there? The eunuch commanded the chariot to stand still. And what does it say? In Acts chapter 8, verses 36 through 39, you're going to see the Bible say that they went down into the water... And came up out of the water. ever hear that happening with a sprinkle? Can that happen with a pouring? That's what we see in Acts chapter 8. They went down into the water and they came up out of the water. What can we necessarily infer about that? Baptism is... If you turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, you're going to see how Jesus Christ himself was baptized. Now, Jesus was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, not for their repentance or the remission of sins. But how was Jesus Christ baptized? Well, in Mark chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it tells us that Jesus went down into the water and came up out of the water. Yet again, we can infer from that, that baptism is a mercy. If you turn to Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul says, Therefore we are buried with him in baptism. I don't know about you, but I've never seen someone buried, correctly, have a few body parts hanging up above the dirt. Paul says you're buried with him in baptism. If you turn to John chapter 3 and verse 23, it says that John baptized in Anon. Why why did he baptize in Anon, it says? Well, John chapter 3 and verse 23 says, because there was much water there. Why would he need to be in a place where there was much water? Well, because baptism is immersion. Baptism is submergence. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. This is something we're going to actually break down together. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 4, we're going to see Paul say, Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What do we see from this text? In Romans chapter 6, Paul says that baptism is a burial. When we are baptized into Christ, do you, I don't know, maybe you've never had it put this way. When we are baptized into Christ, we do the same three things that Jesus Christ himself did. When Jesus Christ went to the cross, he, he, he died, right? He, he died, and then he was buried, he was put in a tomb he raised again we partake in those same three things when we go to the waters of baptism we come to the waters of baptism dead to our former self and our former self dies and he is put away and then he is buried for those sins and then he is raised to walk in newness of life and so just as Jesus was dead and was buried and was raised every one of us have to be dead and buried and raised. Baptism is immersion. Secondly, baptism is the commission. If you turn in your Bibles, the the final address that, that Jesus makes to his apostles, to his disciples in Matthew chapter 28 verses 19 through 20, Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the age. The age. Amen. What does he say? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you turn to your Bibles to Mark chapter 16, Mark talks about this great commission. In Mark 16, 15 and 16, he says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not will be condemned. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verses 46 through 47, you're going to see Luke's edition of the Great Commission. In verse 46, he says, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, In that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem when we look at baptism baptism is the commission it it was commissioned to us by Jesus himself that every creature should be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit thirdly baptism is for remission Turn to Acts chapter two, where we're going to see the day of Pentecost. But while you're turning there, just take a moment to think about this: The, the baptism is for commission, or it is our commission. Jesus commanded his disciples that in order to be a disciple, in order to be a follower of mine, you had to do this: you had to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. You had to be baptized in order to be saved. And you had to have the remission of sins. He said that you should preach the remission of sins to all nations, beginning first at Jerusalem. What is the remission of sins? What is the means by which we get the remission of sins? Turn to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, we're going to see the very beginning of New Testament Christianity at the day of Pentecost when the church was first instituted on earth. And we're going to ask the question, how did they gain salvation? Because I want to be a part of the New Testament church. I, I want to follow the pattern of the New Testament. Well, we got to ask how they were saved in Acts chapter 2 at the very beginning. In verse 36 it says, Therefore let all the house of Israel know that assuredly God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, and now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Let's just stop right there. You're going to ask about the context of this passage. Peter has just preached uh, this this amazing sermon in which all these different languages understood what was being told and and he preaches this lesson about about who Jesus Christ truly was who who the man from Nazareth truly was and and how he was the Messiah and how he was the one that they were supposed to be waiting on And he preaches this lesson and it's this powerful lesson and at the end of it he says this Jesus you crucified you were responsible just 50 days before at Killing the Messiah. You crucified him. You killed him. You killed the Son of God. What does the text say after they heard that? Well, it tells us that they believed. They were cut to the heart. Another idea to look at is they had their hearts pricked by the message Peter was preaching, they were convinced. That Peter, what Peter was saying was truthful. They were convicted that they had done wrong. They felt that guilt of killing Jesus Christ. So what do they call out? What do they call out? They they say, men and brethren, what shall we do? What what do we do about this? How how, how do we make this right? How do we rectify this wrong that we've done? What are we supposed to do? that's when peter says well you've done enough you believed. you're obviously sorrowful for what you've done you've shown that, that 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 you you're convinced that jesus is the christ you believe so go on your way you've done enough is that what he says what does he say he doesn't say go go on your way your sins are forgiven you what does he say what does peter say well let's read verse 38 It says, Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Brethren, faith was not enough. These men and women at Pentecost. Faith was not the point at which they got the remission of sins. Belief was not enough. Sorrow, being sorry, repentance wasn't even enough. They had to repent and be baptized. And what was that baptism for? It says, it says, be baptized for the remission of sins. Here's a question. Was this baptism to commemorate the forgiveness that had already been given? You know, some people believe that about baptism. Baptism is simply just to commemorate how God has already forgiven us. Is that what we see in Acts chapter 2? Had they already received forgiveness and this baptism was just a commemoration of that forgiveness? Absolutely not. Notice something. When was the Holy Spirit gifted? Was the Holy Spirit gifted to them when they believed and when they called out? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Well, you believe, you've been convinced, you're sorrowful. So here's the Holy Spirit. No. Be baptized for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was given after they were baptized for the remission of their sins. Baptism is for remission but it is also for admission. If you look at verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Baptism is for admission into the kingdom of God. Notice in this text in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41, When were they added to them? Were they added to them when they believed and when they cried out and when they were convinced and convicted and sorrowful? Or was it after they had been baptized? What was it that added them? Was it faith? Or was it at the point of baptism? Well, look at what Acts chapter 2 and verse 47 says. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 47, in the immediate context, it says, Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I want us to logic this out. Remember Walter Scott, he tried to reason through salvation and and point some logic out. So let's, let's logic this one out. Those who were being saved were added. But in order to be saved, we know that you have to have the remission of sins, right? We have to have our sins forgiven in order to be saved. Well, in order to get the remission, in order to get the forgiveness, we have to be baptized, according to Acts chapter 2. It seems so simple, right? It seems so easy for us to understand, well, it's because it's the milk of the Word. It's the elementary principle. It's supposed to be easy for us to understand. And yet the entire world is confused to this day about it. Baptism is for admission because in order to be a part of the body of Christ, you have to be baptized into the body of Christ. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. That's where Paul's going to say, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Baptism is for admission. But, lastly the New Testament tells us baptism is not an option. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 21 Peter says there is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of the filth of the flesh but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter says there is an antitype. What's he saying? There's an answer. There is now an answer for us. There's an answer to the question what is going to save us? The answer is baptism. Baptism now saves us. Not to be confused with taking a bath and and getting the dirt off, but instead washing away your sins. That's what baptism does. And you're going to see that if you turn to Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. Paul is recounting his baptism and he's talking about how he became a Christian he's talking about what took place and in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16 Paul says and now why are you waiting arise and be baptized wash away your sins calling upon the name of the Lord you know many people in the denominational world say all you got to do is call on the name of the Lord you ever hear that if you hear somebody say, all you got to do is call on the name of the Lord, say these few words, and you'll be saved. At the end of a TV special, now everybody just close your eyes and just follow along with me. Call on the name of the Lord with me, will you? What they don't realize is what calling on the name of the Lord means. And you see it right here in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. When we are baptized, that is the moment we call on the name of the Lord. This passage tells us that that baptism is when we call on the name of the Lord. And not only that, it tells us that baptism is not something to be put off, right? He says, now why are you waiting? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. He says it's not something that you can just put off. Yet we see time and time again people putting off that baptism. If you turn to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, perhaps the most important verse about baptism in all the Bible. In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, Paul says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying is when we are baptized into Christ, we put Christ on Baptism is the point that, that we are in Christ. You know, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, and verse 3, we have been given all spiritual blessings in Christ. He says we've been given the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins in verse 7, in Christ. He says we've become a, a new creation in Christ. We have no condemnation if we are in Christ. We have eternal life if we are in Christ in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. The moment we get in Christ is when? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27 tells us the point of baptism. Until we are baptized, we do not wear the name of Christ. We cannot call ourselves Christians and wear His name until we've done the thing that puts us in His name. In order to wear his name, we have to be baptized into his name. Baptism is not an option. So tonight, as we start to think about ourselves, as you start to think about your soul and and your walk with Christ, and you start to think about your soul tonight, if you're online with us, if you're here with us tonight, and you start thinking about yourself, the question is very clear. The application tonight is very clear. Have you met the standard of God's Word when it comes to baptism? Have you followed the formula, the the prescription, the, the, the recipe that God's Word sets forth, the guidelines that we just read through, all those commands, and all those examples, and all those implications, time and time again, we just read I don't know how many passages about baptism. Have you met the standard when it comes to baptism? Have you obeyed the commands? Have you followed the examples? Have you made the inferences that God's Word implies when it comes to baptism? You know, many of their stores lost their jobs. They lost their reputations. They lost their uh, livelihoods. They lost their licenses because they started to preach about the restoration of biblical baptism. The question tonight I have is, what does baptism mean to you tonight? What are you willing to do to defend the doctrine of baptism in the New Testament? What are you willing to do to to maintain the truth of the most foundational aspect of our faith, which is salvation? You know, I don't know every single person in this room's situation, right? But maybe in this room we have people here tonight who, who have read those scriptures over and over and over again. baptized maybe maybe we have people online watching us tonight who who have read those scriptures over and over and over again and have heard and have seen and have have been shown the truth of of baptism in the gospel and how we're supposed to obey the gospel and yet they've never been baptized or maybe there's people in this room who, who got baptized and they know it wasn't for the right reason, but for years and years and years to save themselves from the embarrassment, they refused to be baptized for the right reason. I don't know what the case is for every single person in this room tonight, but I know that there are some in need of baptism. I know that you know of some that are in need of baptism. And you know what the thing is about baptism? It's not like a dress that we can all disagree on. It's not something trivial like the color of a dress. Well, I see it this way and you see it that way. That's not how baptism is. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. You're going to see Peter and John After they've been released from the the Jewish Sanhedrin, they're going to say, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. What they're saying is, this is it. Jesus Christ is it. He is the last stop. He is the last place on the train he is the last way that we can make it to heaven there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we might be saved other than Jesus Christ and yet there are some people in this room there are some people online that seem to be waiting on on someone else to come and save them because Jesus has made it clear he's made it clear that baptism is the only way Baptism is the only way that you put me on. Baptism is the only way that you get the blood that I shed for you. And yet time and time again, people seem to look for another. When the Savior's right there waiting for them to look, look at Him, do what He's asked. Tonight, if, if that's you, what are you waiting for? If you're online with us, I'm curious, what what are you waiting for? What's holding you back from obeying the gospel tonight? It's all been laid out for you. The reason for baptism, how, how we are to be baptized, what baptism does, it's all been laid out for you tonight. What is holding you back from obeying the gospel? Hebrews chapter 2, this is how I feel about baptism and I feel about salvation. Hebrews chapter 2 says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How are we going to escape the the madness and the darkness and the trials and the tribulations and and all the things that are going on in the world today? How are we going to escape if we sit here and neglect so great a salvation? A salvation that was fought for, that was died for, that was bought, that was given to us for free. God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God. Eternal life through Jesus Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There are those tonight who will neglect this tremendous salvation from the Lord. You don't have to. I don't know what barrier is coming in between you. Maybe it's your family. Maybe your family wasn't baptized. Maybe maybe you're, you're afraid that you're condemning your family and doing that. Well, Well, Paul says that we are to seek our own salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus says that we are to hate our father, hate our mother, hate our brother, hate our sister, if it means coming in between our relationship with Jesus. And if it is the case that your your loved ones have gone gone on to the next life and they didn't do what God's word prescribes about baptism, don't you think they want you to? Don't you think... That just like that rich man and Lazarus. They are pleading for someone to come to your house. To save them from the torment that they're in. That's why we have the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And maybe that applies to some of you tonight. Tonight, I don't know what your case is, but we've, we've gone back in time to understand how we got to where we are tonight when it comes to the very core of who we are as members of the Lord's Church. And that's baptism. Bill Humble said that Walter Scott gave the movement its greatest evangelism tool, right? By talking about baptism for the remission of sins. The question we have to look at in the next week is how would this message, how, how would this evangelism be spread? How would the restoration movement take this greatest evangelism tool and, and spread it to all the surrounding cities and counties and, and states in and this country? How, how would they take this greatest tool of evangelism, this new message of, of logic and reason and, and looking at the Scriptures and understanding what God's Word says? How did the restoration movement take that into the world? That is a story. go to God in a word of prayer. Our dear most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, well, thank you so much again for the opportunity to come together and to study a portion of your word to go to the to just the very bedrock of Christianity. The very beginning of what it means to follow you and that is that baptism when we get the remission of our sins. We are admitted into the kingdom of your Son. We pray for those tonight who have not put your son's name on in baptism. Those in our family, those who are here tonight. We pray that they will do so. That they can receive all the blessings and, and all the, the wonderful things that you have prepared for those who obey you. Lord, thank you so much for how easy and plainly your word sets forth our way to get. I pray that uh, we can spread this message to our loved ones, to those that we come in contact with, so that they too can be children of yours.